Good morning, La Jolla Community Church, and welcome. Today is our alternative gift market. You may have noticed all the decorations and all the curtains and exotic looks outside on the patio. Well, between 10 and 12.30 today, which is between both services, groups have come to offer handcrafted items, fair trade items, gifts in kind uh, to our congregation. Uh, these all benefit worthy causes around the world, including in our own backyard. So we hope you'll come between the services. Everyone is invited to see these wonderful, unique Christmas gifts. So come and support us. We look forward to seeing you out on the patio. Did you also know that on Tuesday, November 16th, the Family Ministry, which is a combination of youth ministry and children's ministry, is going to be holding a Friendsgiving. This free event is going to be here at the church from 6.30 to 8 p.m. There's gonna be dinner and games and activities for the entire family. Additionally, Ryan and Connie will be here to talk about the curriculum moving forward for your youth. So please bring your family, your friends, your neighbors, and come and join us for this Friendsgiving. Make sure to stop by and pick up an invitation on your way out today. See you there. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. At this time, we're going to get started with worship, so you're welcome to stand. Your praise on it. 
Yeah. 
morning. Good morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you to cast all our burdens and cares onto you. Lord, you're aware of everything going on in our lives. Please come into our lives and give us peace. Remind us to think of you and your goodness instead of worrying about our problems. Give us rest and help us to trust in you. Please take away all of our fears and anxieties and grant us with peace and serenity. We pray to you today to say thank you for everything you have given us. But more than anything else, you have given us the unspeakable gift, a path unto salvation through your son, Jesus. Lord, give us your worship. We give you our worship and our thanksgiving today. Be with Steve as he brings our message, your message, to us. Thank you for this beautiful day. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, La Jolla Community Church. You may be seated. My name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the Student Ministries Director here at La Jolla Community Church, and I want to welcome everybody to our wonderful church this Sunday morning. How's everybody doing? We survived our week this week? Yeah, I did too. Well, I hope everybody's really excited and really hungry because if you listen to our video announcements earlier today, you know that we've got a lot of family dinners coming up for Thanksgiving. If you are between the ages of zero and 200, we have a dinner for you. So if you would like to participate in one of our Thanksgiving dinners or you've got a friend, a family member, or a neighbor who you think could use a little extra love this week, the wonderful thing about these bulletins, if you notice, they fold right in half and that top half works as a perfect invitation to any of the wonderful, wonderful dinners that we've got going on this week. So please take a moment, take home that little welcome half, invite somebody, let them know that we've got a wonderful community that is ready to love them and welcome them with open arms. Speaking of our welcome card, the bottom half, you may notice on the top, it says let's or it says get connected with us. This is our connect card. This is how we at La Jolla Community Church get you plugged in and engaged in some of the wonderful events going on here at La Jolla Community Church. On your way in, you may have noticed the wonderful decorations set up for the alternative gift market. That's just another one of the great opportunities that you you have to get involved and engaged here at La Jolla Community Church. So if you haven't filled one of these out or it's been a little while since you've turned in a Connect card, please take a moment, fill out that Connect card, and you can drop it off on your way out with the prayer card. Speaking of prayer card, if you flip that bad boy right over on the back side, it says, let us pray for you. We here at La Jolla Community Church believe in the power of prayer. We believe in coming together, lifting up the things that are going on in our lives and encouraging one another. My favorite thing that I get to do every single week is pray individually over every single prayer request that gets turned in on Sunday. So if you've got something going on in your life, something difficult, something you need a little extra love, a little extra prayer for, please take a moment, fill out that prayer card, and on your way out in uh, the foyer, on your way out, you can drop that off in the little offering boxes. And then in the front of your seats, you should see uh, the offering envelopes, and you can turn those in on your way out. Well, we thank you all so much for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful Sunday. And with that, I'm going to invite Pastor Steve up to lead us in a message. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Well, hey, today and uh, this weekend is Veterans Day weekend, and uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to all of you who have served the country. Uh, we have people in this room who have served it at the highest levels, literally, and others who have served just long enough to say, I think I'm ready for college, you know, uh, but thank you uh, for your veteran here with us today. Uh, one of the things that we're committed to as a church is raising up veterans, I mean that in the broadest sense of the word. Uh, not necessarily people who've had a military experience. Uh, a veteran is literally somebody who has seen combat. It's not just somebody who has, has worn a uniform. It's somebody who has actually uh, been out there and knows what that's about. We're raising up veterans. Veterans, people who have been with Jesus in a way that they can say, I, I, I've learned what it's about. Uh, when you talk to a veteran, as opposed to all the other guys at the bar, pontificating on this, that, or the other, or watching the game, or talking about people they knew that did something. When you hear a veteran talk about anything, climbing mountains, sailing ships, fighting battles, um, doing long, uh, arduous runs, uh, taking on big responsibilities in life, you listen a lot more closely. Why? Because what they talk about comes out of a real earned experience. You might have a lot of conceptual knowledge behind them, which is always fantastic. You can be an expert on a lot of things and not really do it. Um, you can have a good pastoral counseling couple's experience with a priest. 
who's never been married. So there's nothing about nothing wrong with having a lot of knowledge and not a lot of experience. But experience always trumps just knowledge, really. Uh, especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about an experience with the living God. Not just knowing about the resurrection, but experiencing it in your life. Not just knowing about this concept called sin. Uh, we're all alienated from God, creation, our very own beings, and from one another. That's a great concept, but all of us are veterans when it comes to talking about sin. We know the devastating consequences of being a flawed, fallible human being. So one of the things that we're committed to, as I said, is raising up veterans. That is, people who know how to walk with Jesus, not just talk about Jesus. And so we've been talking this fall about thriving and growing. Thriving and growing is not a conceptual abstraction. It's a real, in the middle of the life you're actually living, experience of knowing God because you're walking with God. It is so far out of any of our reach that it seems completely implausible. Oh, you've been talking to your imaginary friend again. Uh, you've been reading that old book that is probably completely irrelevant because it was written so long ago to a whole different kind of people. No, no, I've been having a, a conversation with the God who gave himself for me, who's redeeming me, who has rescued me, who is empowering me to become the best version of me. His word constantly blows my mind because it reveals truth about me that I wouldn't have known otherwise. Confirms the world I live in and gives me hope for the one that I'm looking forward to. The power of a veteran is their testimony. Their testimony of somebody who's not just seen stuff, but has been in the thick of it. And I've noticed that when I talk to veterans, uh, they're not giving you a cinemagraphic experience. They're usually a little bit more subdued because they realize, as they would say, everyone I've ever talked to would say, the real heroes just didn't get back. Um, and so... Every veteran sitting here today is a humble person because they're saying, yes, I did serve. It was at times harrowing, at times the most exciting thing we've ever done. In fact, it's hard to get back to normal life, to normal civilian life, because life is so intense in that environment. But the real heroes are those who remain behind. So where are you in this idea and this experience of walking with God? That's what we're talking about this fall, as in thriving and growing, because it's possible to actually thrive and grow in the Lord. You might be in a season of pruning. You feel like everything that could be against you is arrayed and aligned against you, whether it's your health, your finances, any number of things might be not going the way you were hoping and praying they would go. Consider that a season of pruning. You should have seen our garden before Janet got into it yesterday. She must have been inspired by the habitat build or something. You know, all that, all that physical energy. Um, I, I'm trying to beat the sermon to a finish line. And she comes home and is out there pruning, I would say, the life out of our garden. What she was, I could hear the screams in the house. No, not me. Go to that bush. You know. uh, but no, what happened is I came out and I looked fantastic after I stopped crying. And then... It's going to look more fantastic. Why? Because the plant's going to be stronger and more verdant, and et cetera. So um, if you don't get anything else from what I say today, understand that everything I say is meant to help you become a veteran, somebody with credibility in Christ. Are you with me on that? So let's just jump in. Uh, we've been talking, as I said, about thriving and growing this fall. And Jesus, uh, in his last meal with his disciples, we don't have a slide for this, uh, but in John chapter 15, he gives this great metaphor. He says, abide in me like the branch abides in the plant. And like the plant is attached to the roots. Because in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can really not do anything. There might be a lot of foliage, very impressive, but there won't be a lot of fruit. And what fruit there is will not be fully developed properly. So that's, that's the metaphor of thriving and growing that, that we operate on. This idea that we're meant to be transformed because of our relationship with the living God. We will bear fruit in Christ as we abide in him. That's the old-fashioned word. Uh, sometimes the, the word's translated remain in him. I would say staying connected to him is what we're talking about. It, when we mean uh, when we talk about thriving and growing, it's staying connected to the living God who gives us life, to live the life that we were created for, that we're being redeemed and saved and sanctified for. 
So here's, here's the bombshell. God personally wants to bless you. It's not, a, again, uh, I hope those people out there are happy. I hope that world is a happy place. Uh, you know you're talking to a fake posing person, whether a politician or anybody, a pundit. When they start talking about the world, when they start talking about the earth, versus I want to hear them talk about that river, that place that's being torn up environmentally. I want to, talk, I want to hear them talk about those people that they know and they cry with because they're going through a difficult circumstance. You see what I'm saying? As soon as you start distancing the world, you, you talk as a global citizen. You're not a citizen anywhere. You're a vagrant. You're a poser. You're a, you're a free rider. Because you're saying, what are you really saying? I'm not accountable to anybody. I'm not connected to anybody. If it gets bad, I'm just moving. If I don't like it here, I'll go there. You're the ultimate consumer. God does not treat us that way. God says, I know your name. I know the amount of hairs on your head. Some of you, it's really easy to know that. But regardless, he knows everything about you, and he still likes you and loves you. As somebody has said, many have said, if you, if you were the only person in the world who needed Jesus to die on the cross, he would have done it. He is personal, scary, close, personal. This is something that's lost on us in our culture. I want world peace so badly. I want a healthy economy. Ah, what are you doing to contribute to world peace? What are you doing to contribute to a healthy economy? I want racial reconciliation. What are you doing to contribute to racial reconciliation? I want, and you figure whatever it is, it's all good. God bless you for having that, that, that concern and that focus and that heart. What are you going to do about it? What God does about it, he says, I am blessing you to be a blessing. You, not just you, humanity. You, your first, middle, and last name. Your nickname. The nickname you'd like nobody to know. He knows that one. He knows you so well that when he says, I want to bless you, you know he knows how to bless you. You know, early on in marriages, especially husbands, give some very lame gifts to their wives. It looks so good at Home Depot for, for whatever reason. I just don't know why she didn't like it. But what happens is, over time, you learn how to say, what did he really need? What does this kid really want? There are a lot of nervous parents right now. And if they drive the 405 into L.A., they're always looking over towards San Pedro in Long Beach and all those ships stacked out at sea. You're going, I think the thing I want to get my kid is on one of those ships. So now this person is, is all of a sudden dialed into the supply chain. Lord, I'm praying for that ship, container ship, and the people at the port. That they, you know, When things get personal, that's when life gets interesting. And God is interested in us, and he makes it personal. God personally blesses us to be a blessing. And this is a biblical paradigm. This is how it all started. God tells Abram, trust me. I want to bless you to be a blessing. And so Abraham, Abram, later Abraham, trusted God, and it says God credited it to him as righteousness. He hadn't really done anything, and a lot of what he did subsequent to that wasn't all that righteous. But God said, I'm drawing you into a relationship of righteousness, and I will instruct you how to live that. I will be with you. You don't have a family? I'm going to give you a family. You don't have a heritage? I'm going to give you heritage. I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to bless all the nations on earth through you. Is that personal or what? Can you imagine standing at Birch Aquarium and all of a sudden you have this sense of presence and you look around and you're the only one there and, and all of a sudden you, you're thinking, wow, I love these fish. And the voice in your head now says, yeah, me too. That's why I made them. You think, what is that all about? I mean, that's how personal God is. You say, yeah, yeah, wasn't that awesome? <laughs> he, he would use better language than I'm using perhaps. But he would speak in a way that you'd understand him. And so he prospers us for a purpose. He prospers us for a purpose. He wants to help us live that life in all its fullness that Jesus promised in John 10.10. 10. And I have to ask you this question then. If this is the biblical paradigm, starting with Abram, continuing to you, and God wants to prosper you for a purpose, do you know what that purpose is? If you're not in his word, you will never know what the purpose is. The purpose you will adopt and adapt to will be the one that your culture tells you. 
or perhaps your family tells you. And like a stopped clock, they might be right twice a day. But they won't be right all the time. Because the purposes we want for each other are usually purposes of convenience for us. What I want in this three-year-old more than anything else right now is silence. I want calm. Is that what the three-year-old really needs? Uh, maybe they just need to run around and be a three-year-old, you know? So God wants to prosper us appropriately in every age and stage in life. Are you personally committed to his purpose for you? Or are you so busy with your purpose that you really don't take the time to say, okay, Lord, remind me once again, what is your purpose for me? I, have the, I must have the shortest memory on the planet because every time I read the Bible, I go, oh, I remember that. Oh, yeah, I need to be doing that. Oh, I, I keep forgetting that. How can I have walked with Christ for so long and I keep forgetting his word? Because I leak. You leak. We just leak. Everything leaks out of us. We need to keep being replenished and refilled. Are you personally committed to his purpose for you? Get into his word. Get into a small group with other people. Talk about, hey, what are you experiencing and learning about God's purpose? What is that looking like at this age and stage in your life? So let's, let's jump into some scripture and, 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 and draw some conclusions. Uh, the first scripture is from Psalm 112, uh, verses 1 to 5. I think there's 10 verses in the whole psalm. It's a short psalm. Uh, and the verses uh, in the psalm are arranged along the, the Hebrew alphabet. And as you know, the psalms were written over a long period of time. King David wrote psalms, you know, 1,000 years B.C. This psalm was written after the people had been taken off into captivity and returned back to Israel. So this is probably 500 years uh, before Jesus' birth. And when the people came back from captivity, and, and if you remember Nehemiah and Ezra and all those people that rebuilt the city and rebuilt the wall, rebuilt the temple, then uh, they were saying, we need to refocus the people on, on the Lord. And so they collected all the psalms. That's when the psalms came together. But they finally all were fit into that collection of psalms. And so this is a psalm that represents a lot of experience. This is a psalm written by a veteran, right? A person who has seen the history of Israel, has been immersed in the Torah, in the writings, in the, in the words of the prophets. So this is an end game, you know, late, late in the game compilation of all that God has been doing. And so think of it as a bit of a summary. And it says, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who are in awe of the Lord. Not who cringe before him, but who are in awe of him. Who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. Now this is their immediate children, their grandchildren, the generations of people that come out of that family. And so the generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses. Uh, we won't take a lot of time to define that, describe that. But this is not just money. As you know, it was, it was pretty hard to, <laughs> to hold on to money. They're, they're, they were hard. It was hard. Uh, and so often wealth was more along the lines of the wealth of your health, you know, the wealth of your family, the wealth of um, the fact that the crops are coming in and nobody's ravaging the land. Uh, but also wealth was in terms of you buy things, uh, carpets, you'd buy utensils, you'd, you'd buy interesting things that would, in a sense, be portable wealth. So the psalmist is saying, wealth and riches are in their houses. There's a sense of prosperity in this house that belies maybe what looks like austerity and modesty. There's something rich coming into this house. And one of the beautiful expressions of this was hospitality. You, you cannot, to this day, walk into a house anywhere, if it's a Palestinian house or, or an Israeli Jewish house, and not be bombarded with just gracious hospitality. Now, you can't go anywhere in Africa. Those of you who've been to Africa, Latin America, uh, you, you go to, to Ecuador, and, and you're sitting there at a dinner, and they pull out this big glob of fat, and you're totally repulsed by it until you realize this is the greatest honor they can do for me as the visiting guest. But, oh, Lord, I have to eat it. And this big glob of fat, you're thinking, my worst enemy wouldn't think this is a good idea at home. But here I am the honored guest, and I'm thinking, no, please, you know. Oh, delicious. Oh, this is so good. Thank you very much. But the wealth and, and, and the riches is expressed in all kinds of great things that are often very intangible. 
But there's a, something good going on in that, in that home. And their righteousness, the right, rightly related network that that house represents with God and with one another, with the community, endures forever. It's, it perpetuates itself. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. For those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous, God will, good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. So it's describing a prosperous life. Think of all the immigrants who came to this country, uh, my family among them, who said we grew up so, so poor in the Bronx, we just didn't know it, though, because everybody around us was as poor as we were, and we all, all the kids were playing together and going to school and just being kids, and until everybody got outside their neighborhood, they didn't know how poor they were. They were living a prosperity that, looking back, they say, oh, my gosh, it could have been so much different and better. But I don't know. At the time, it just seemed great. Right? You've experienced this, haven't you? That's what the psalm is talking about. A generosity that points back to some basis in a, in a wealth of, of living, buttressed by things and experiences, but pretty much at the core of it is that right relationship with God and one another. This is, the, in a sense, the summation of Israel's view of generosity and giving. Now, forward this into the New Testament era. 556 years later, let's say, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter from Macedonia. Uh, Macedonia is north of Greece. It's now a separate place, but at one point it was a region and, and part of the Greek Empire. And if you're looking at a map, Macedonia is here, and then Turkey would be over here, and the rest of Greece is down here, and Europe would be over here, and you know, it goes down, the Mideast is down here. Well, he's in Macedonia because he's on his third missionary journey, and he's been in Ephesus, and along the way he heard that in Corinth there's some big problems, big, big problems. He sends some leaders there to help them out, and he's getting a word about that as he travels, and by the time he gets to Macedonia, and he's there uh, to encourage the believers, but also there's a big famine in Israel, and Jerusalem is in dire straits. And so while he's there and, and tells them about this, the people of Macedonia, these churches, say, we've got to help them. And they start collecting money. And they're not wealthy people. They just start pulling together not just a little bit, but a lot of, of, of their resources. Because our brothers and sisters are dying in Jerusalem. So that's the context of the letter. Now, Paul is in Macedonia organizing this collection. And he's writing to the Corinthians. And he says, you know, these Corinthians... Uh, are in so much conflict because they're focusing on themselves. They need to start focusing on God's purposes around them. And so he's saying to them, hey, by the way, this is what the Macedonians are doing. Wouldn't it be great if you did this as well? So that's the context for this passage. So he says, remember this, in verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Can I have an amen from any farmers in the room? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, those of you who are farmers know that if you have a big field and you only plant a small part of it, you don't expect the whole field to bear your crop. Somebody might come out and, and they go, wow, what happened? What, what do you mean? Well, you have 40 acres here, and I see 200 square feet has been planted. Oh, yeah, I was busy. It was inconvenient. I like sleeping in. Big sports fan, you know. Okay, then. What are you going to do? About what? Uh, about the fact you don't have a crop. It'll work out. I, my neighbors, I'll borrow something. I'll go, they're nice. They're, very, they're good people. Very generous. It'd be ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thought. Everybody wants to maximize what they plant, right? They want to maximize the crop. Because they know that along the way, some parts of the crop aren't going to come through, and the birds will help themselves, and etc. So here's Paul just giving them a basic analogy that they all understand. So if you imagine them reading this, he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. They're going, yeah, no duh, okay, what else do you have to say? And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Okay, we're with you. Yeah, so far it's common sense. We're all veterans, we know how this works. And he says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. What's he implying? What is your capacity and what is your commitment? 
You've decided based on your capacity what's appropriate for me to be able to give. He's already told them the Macedonians are giving more than they can really afford. They're giving lavishly, generously. So each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Why in your heart? Because he's saying, I don't want you to just do the quick math in your head. Well, how much will I not really miss? From your heart. What do you really care about? What moves you? What will keep you awake at night thinking, oh no, what if that doesn't work out for them? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, an enthusiastic giver. Not a stupid giver, not an an immature giver, not a pretentious giver, not a reckless giver, not somebody who is, hey, honey, good news, I just sold the house and everything in it, and I've sent it to Jerusalem. Oh, what are we going to do? No problem, I did that too. I sold us into slavery. It's an awesome deal. You'd say, that's not really smart. Just like the farmer wouldn't say, yeah, we ate all the, all the, the seed corn. Why? We were hungry. Well, what are you going to plant? I don't know. So there's some wisdom in, you, in the way you give as a cheerful giver. Cheerful givers give cheerfully because they said, isn't it great? I know God's going to provide for me. I know I might have to do without this. I might have to work harder there. But let's go for it. Nobody has to know, but we'll know every day. It'll make us smile. It'll make us feel like, wow. I hope it's going well for those people. And so he goes on to say, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Why? Because generosity begets generosity. When you talk to the veteran and you say, How did, how did it go? How was your first encounter with the enemy with that, in a battle? Oh, I was scared out of my wits. I didn't quite know what I was doing. Training kicked in. Senior officers really guided me. And over the years, I got better at it and better at it and better at it. And after a while, it was so part of who I was that it was, it was fully integrated into the way that I thought. Every good work begets more good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Where's that from? First nine of this passage is from Psalm 112, verse 9. He's quoting 112. Why? Because everybody would know it. Now he who supplies, he's talking about God, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Some people have taken this and abused it into what's called the prosperity gospel. If you invest money with God, he will give you a big return. It's just a completely bizarre uh, distortion of what we're talking about here. God wants us to be prosperous. He gets to define what prosperity is. That's why we have to understand our purpose. It's not like, oh, if I invest this, God's obligated to give me that. Name it, claim it. No. It's a perversion of what Paul is saying here. But he, he is saying what is true. God will increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What does that mean? It means you will grow in your capacity to be generous with whatever you have. You become creative in your generosity. Have you ever been around a really creative chef? They can take thin air and make a meal out of it, it seems like. They can just do stuff, and you think, how did you even think about that? Well, because they have a lot of experience. I'm a veteran at this. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. This is a bomb-proof Bulletproof promise from God. It does nothing to support a prosperity gospel. What it does is it expresses the gospel. And through us, that is us delivering the gift you're going to give, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. It's a ripple effect of generosity that you're being a part of. The Macedonians... Uh, influence you, you're going to give it to the, the, the people in Jerusalem, they're going to get back on their feet, and that powerful city will be an epicenter for generosity in the years ahead. Because of the service by which you have proven yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Your obedience is a form of confession. That is, confession not as I did something wrong, but confession of here's why I do what I do. 
and your generosity and for, for your generosity and sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Whoa, what, what does that mean? It means it's a gift that God's giving us that we get to give. He frees us up to be fully human and fully alive as we learn to give. And at the end of that process, or during that process, we say, oh my gosh, Lord, I thought I was the big giver here. You've been giving me a gift. I didn't even realize it. Oh my gosh. So you see, it's just this virtuous cycle of growing and giving, giving and growing. Uh, if you've been to Israel, you know that the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the mountain, Mount Hermon flows into the Sea of Galilee. Uh, from the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River flows into what's called the Dead Sea. One of, one of the seas is alive and well, and that's the one that receives water and gives water. The one that's dead, the sea, it's great for floating, but that's about it. You can float in it, but if you have a cut anywhere in your body, you'll regret the fact that you're floating in it. And you can slather the mud on yourself, it's rich in minerals, but you can't eat it, and you can't drink the water. And it's a dead sea for a reason. It's the kind of sea you want to get out of and go, now can I take a shower? God makes us confident and cheerful givers. Why? Because we're learning to give, because we're learning to receive, because we're learning to give, because we're learning to receive, and all of it is a growth process. Does that describe you? Are you stuck right now in that paradigm? Uh, I don't know. Or are you enjoying that paradigm? We don't believe, as I said, in a prosperity gospel or an adversity gospel. Well, if you're really a true Christian, everything will be prosperous. Oh, if you're really a true Christian, you should live in adversity. Both of those are bad extremes. They're non-biblical. We believe in the gospel that sustains us in prosperity and in adversity. We embrace them both and say, Lord, what do you want to do in the midst of this situation? The believers in, in Jerusalem, going through a drought and a famine, were saying, Lord, how do you want to prosper in the midst of this adversity? The people of Macedonia were saying, Lord, there's adversity all around us. But you've prospered us enough that we want to be part of what you're doing to bless these people. We believe in that gospel that sustains us in prosperity and in adversity. Which of those describes you right now? Are you living a life of prosperity or adversity? It's a challenging question, isn't it? Because you might say, well, technically I have everything I need. But there's a lot of things going on that really are robbing me of joy. Uh, by the way, just from pure economics, the economic studies have shown that <clears throat> more money makes your life better up to, in the United States, $75,000. If you have $75,000 of annual income in the United States, pretty much you can live a good life. After $75,000, it diminishes. The happiness factor, the more money you make, happiness doesn't track with that. Up to $75,000, you're happier when you get more money because you're less insecure. It's like having enough food. It might not be luxurious, but enough food, I'm happy. At some point, oh, there's luxurious food I eat every night. The happiness doesn't keep up with that. You follow that? So there's an objective criteria that we can look at about this. So how do you define prosperity and adversity? And how does it affect your giving? If you claim adversity and you think it's a hall pass for not giving, think again. You clearly do not understand God's purpose for you. You're like a thirsty person craving salt. That's how out of it you are. And that, that sounds harsh. It's because it's a call to say, don't kill yourself. Don't poison yourself. See, your giving expresses your theology, the summation of everything you believe about God and his ways. And giving is the fruit revealing the root. Your attitude toward giving indicates where your roots are. Shallow roots, shallow giving. Deep roots, deep giving. Now again, I'm defining giving broadly. Yes, it includes money, but it includes time, talent, treasure, everything. Those of you who took time out of your day yesterday, 
uh, to go out to Lincoln Heights, East San Diego, and come alongside an elderly couple. Uh, he's a veteran. They live in a, a well-maintained small home, but they can't maintain it. They're, they're, they just don't have the physical capacity to do that, and the economic resources. And so a bunch of you, uh, under the auspices of Habitat for Humanity, you went out there. Uh, John Wilson puts these incredible work days together with Habitat. And uh, it's transformational for the people, uh, and it's transformational for the people who are actually serving, right? See, your giving expresses your theology. We can rationalize our giving to trust God and bless people in his name or not. We can rationalize it not to do that. I don't have enough. I might need it. I earned it. They don't deserve it. It's mine. Or it's God's, and I work hard and smart to be a good manager and faithful giver of it. How are you rationalizing your giving? A young couple starting out together saying, okay, we want to establish a giving pattern. We want to tithe. I can guarantee you if they, if they have unbelieving parents, the unbelieving parents will say to the young couple, if they find out, you can't afford to do that. Or if they're believing parents but haven't, don't have a deep theology of giving, they're going to say, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 till, wait till you're more set to do that. Praise God for the family that starts the smallest child in the family with the idea that, well, how much money are you getting in your allowance? How much money did you earn doing that little job? How much of that do you want to save? How much of that do you want to give to the Lord and his work? That kid grows up free. By the time they get married, they say, hey, this is how we want to start our home. The parents are going, right. So here's why we give. We serve a life-creating, life-sustaining, fruitful God. Big idea, number one, coming from all this content I've just said. We serve a life-creating, life-sustaining, fruitful God. We're created in his image to have a fruitful heart, soul, mind, and body. Even when we feel like we have nothing to give, what we have, we give. Peter and John coming out of the temple, seeing the man, he's crippled. Silver or gold have I none, but what I have I give you. The person doesn't have anything to give you, but you're going through a deep time of distress, and they simply take your hand. They don't even have words to give you. They don't know what to say. They just take your hand. They say, is it okay if I just sit with you? It might feel a little awkward at first, but you go, sure. Okay. And they just let you be there. And they don't expect you to carry on a conversation. And they don't try to carry it for you. They just sit there with you. They have nothing to give. They can't bring that person back from the dead or fix the botched surgery or prevent the disaster that's unfolding before everybody. All they can do is say, what I have, I give you. I give you me to be in your presence. And so through the Lord, we have access to material and spiritual resources but if you're not in that giving mentality, you'll miss both of them. Oh, I give spiritual things. No, if you haven't learned how to give everything, you will not be a good spiritual giver. Do not think that way. This is the guy at the bar going, oh, if I was out there, man, I'd just go, I'd just rush him. You know, obviously, you're not a veteran. That's called stupidity, braggadocia. You don't know what you're talking about. You have no strategic concept of what this requires. Therefore, your tactics are flawed. And again, this might sound harsh, but this is the kind of language we have to use and conversation we have to have with the body of Christ in America because we are so neutered in our understanding of how to apply the gospel personally and in our culture. But through the Lord, we have access to material and spiritual resources. Why don't we use them better? Because if we use them pretty well, we're like the tallest pygmy. Very impressive until you get out in the world where people are bigger and taller. You go, oh, I didn't realize. My standard for measuring my height was so limited and limiting. And so our heart expresses concern, care, compassion, comfort to bless others. Our body and mind support our work, providing material resources to bless others. Our soul reflects our faith and our obedience to God's command to bless others. And therefore, godly generosity is a powerful and spiritual force in the world. It's a powerful force. You know the four forces of physics. This is more powerful than any of those forces. This is the force that holds all those things together. 
So saying I am with you is a powerful part of saying I have something to give you. Generosity is its own reward. It's a get-to, not a have-to way of living. Why? Because we serve a life-creating, life-sustaining, fruitful God. Second big idea is this. Generosity is active grace and faith that builds community. You want to be a part of a dynamic community? Start giving to it. How can I give to this community? Remember, people who think I'm, I'm, I'm for the world, I'm for humanity, don't give squat. They're all show, no go. They're massive bloviators. It was shocking to me in the last, in the last two presidential elections that when all those people who were running for president had to reveal their resources, not one of them had a planned, deep expression of charitable giving. Some of them did. They tended to be the more conservative ones. None of the ones on the other side had any charitable giving. What is going on here? Oh, that's right. When you're a global thinker, you don't have to care about local things or local people. It's not a comment on Democrat or Republican. I'm simply saying, when you start to think in terms of these big things, you never think about people where they really live and what God is really doing. And you can't build community that way. Community is built by giving. You earn credibility by loving your kids in practical, tangible ways caring for your neighbors in practical, tangible ways. And anyone and everyone can do it. This is how people thrive and grow. The flip side of generosity is gratitude. We know that. We know that life is a gift and blessing from God, so we're grateful for that. Generous people and grateful people are twice blessed. Generosity and gratitude combine always for a win-win outcome. If, you're, if, you're, if you know somebody who's withholding giving out of a grudge or to make a point, tell them to get over themselves and grow up. They're misusing what's been entrusted to them. I learned a long time ago that I need to give and trust that God's going to bring that gift to the you know, its fullest use possible. I'm not going to try to figure out if, if everybody's worthy of receiving my gift. The mission that they represent, the things they're doing are enough and I will look for credibility you know, indicators, but at some point I'm going to trust that, Lord, I'm giving this to you, and you're going to hold them accountable for how it's used properly. And so neglecting generosity, neglecting deep gratitude is a serious, life-threatening condition, and the church is afflicted with it. Now, this congregation is an amazingly generous congregation, but we can do much, much more. Uh, we're supported by... Um, we're kind of like the government. Half the people don't give anything. A few people give a lot. You can't sustain a community like that. It just takes one or two people to move or die or to get tired of carrying it and to say it's all over. Track with me on this. I saw in the Wall Street Journal this weekend that churches are so down right now because of COVID. And why are they down? Because all the people who are just kind of hanging out aren't coming back. The community isn't holding together. That's in our capacity to change in this congregation and in every congregation in this city. The antidote is learning to live obediently in God's grace and provision. As we trust the Lord, we move from fear-based scarcity to faith-based generosity. We learn to recognize and live in his blessings no matter what our circumstances. We trust in the Lord. Bringing us to our final point. When you give from a heart for God, your heart expands and stays resilient. The widow's might is one of those wonderful stories when Jesus is at the temple and he's with his disciples. He says, check this out. And there's a, a, an older widow with the smallest coins print, you know, made, forged. The smallest coins. When I was a little kid in England, they had farthings. A quarter of a penny. A farthing. I thought I was so wealthy as a five-year-old going, I've got two farthings. I'm, I'm set for life. And once I get a sixpence, there's no stopping me. A shilling, I don't know, it kind of freaked me out to have a shilling. So two mites. 
And he said, that woman is blessed. And she's being a blessing. So, so you see, the fact is, it's capacity, wherever you are. It's all progressive. And this is the best use of the word progressive I can think. We give progressively. What is your capacity? 10% of a dollar, it's a dime. 10% of a million dollars is a lot of money. Over that, it gets to be real money, right? When you give from a heart for God, your heart expands and stays resilient. You don't succumb to giving fear. You don't, you don't succumb to giving fatigue. I'm so tired of giving. I'm so tired of trusting God. You know, you're energized. You're encouraged because God is faithful. He's so faithful that you can learn to do with less. He's so faithful, you can say, maybe this is a pruning season for me, and I'm okay with it. Maybe this is a time when God's humbling me to have to say to somebody, I need help. Would you help me? No shame is saying, I'm upside down. Would you help me? The shame would be, I'm upside down because I've been borrowing so much money. I'm so upside down because of my poor monetary habits that I'm going to keep trying to tap into every source I can find. You want to hear from that person, look, I'm upside down, backwards, I've made some really bad decisions, here's my plan, would you help me? And you go, of course I'll help you. You got a plan? I'll help you. According to Paul, generosity is a decision, a plan to say yes and to say no. No to stupid things. And I'm using the word stupid because there's no children in the room. We're not allowed to say stupid, you know. But all of us adults understand that at the end of the day, that's just foolish. It's not wise inappropriate, non-strategic, whatever words you want to use. But when you know that something isn't going to work and you do it anyway, that's just stupid. But Paul says it's a decision to say yes to things that are important and no to things that just aren't. So a plan is simply, as you know, prioritizing and making sustained commitments and contributions. If If you're... a person right now feeling stuck financially, make a plan. Include giving in your plan. Include saving in your plan. Yeah, but I don't have anything. Just start and make the plan. Start with, by putting your plan on paper. That's a good step. And then start implementing that plan. All right? Have a bias for action. Do a prototype, my first little budget, and then iterate it. Build it out. Okay? Progress, not perfection. A plan allows us to be organized and spontaneous. A plan means that we give diligently and discreetly with discernment. So how are you, how are you presently structuring your life for maximum fruitfulness and generosity? Well, I'm, I've got a plan. I'm working it. Praise God. I've got a plan, but I realize I've been kind of playing it safe, so I'm going to amend my plan. All right. Good, good for you. You know, I'm so, again, behind the eight ball on this, I'm getting counseling to, to put a plan together. Praise God. God bless you. That's a righteous act. And how can you do it more cheerfully and effectively in this season of the life you're in? In the season of life that you're in, what would this look like for you? A little humility. I made a mess of it. I need some help. Or, wow, it's working really well. I need help giving it away. I've had people call me and say, I, my big, I got a big issue. I got too much money. Literally, it sounds like a joke. And of course, I will always say, well, you call the right person. How can I help? And I, say, I need help giving this away. And so it's been really fun to say to people, well, here's, here's the way you can go about doing that. There's a bunch of structured ways that exist to help people. They don't tell you what to give and who to give and how much to give. They just say, here's a process that will help you sort that out. They're becoming veterans. They're becoming not just givers, but champions and veterans of giving. So I'll leave you with this. But I read at the very beginning from Paul, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God will bless you abundantly so that in every way, every day, having everything you need, you will abound in every good work. And as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also Give, and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that we could all learn how to abide in you, wherever we are, to begin abiding you in a new and fresh way.
that we would all be on that pathway, that journey to being veterans of giving and serving. That we would grow in our capacity, not just to give, but to trust you. And to care about people, where they really are. Not in the aggregate or the abstract, but real people in real places with real needs. I pray that that would be our legacy in your name. And it's in your holy name that we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You stood before creation. Eternity in your hand You spoke the earth into motion My soul now to stand You stood before my failures And carried the cross for my shame my sin weighed upon your shoulders my soul now to stand so what can I say and what can I do but offer this so I walk upon salvation your spirit alive in me my life to declare your promise my soul now to stand so what can i say and what can i do Surrender all. 
if we can pray for you for anything that concerns you today, go right out around the corner into the prayer garden, and uh, there'll be people there who can pray with you. You don't even have to tell them what you want prayer for. If you want to, you can. Otherwise, just say, please pray for me, and they will. Uh, what a gift that is. And if you need help figuring out how to get out of a big hole financially, uh, come talk to me. And uh, there's some places I can send you that would allow you to start working on a plan. Uh, if God's speaking to you about what you're doing, um, this is not a message about giving to this church. This is about being a generous giver. And so the wisdom and discernment you need from the Lord is where he wants you to give that. Certainly your, your family, certainly uh, your local church. There's a lot of needs out there. And when, as you work on your plan, be thinking about what's God doing to tug on my heart, focusing my attention. It's a very dynamic process. It's not a give the church money message. It's a give your life to Jesus message. I think that's what we saw in Deneen uh, right now, that he calls out of us that deep desire to know him and walk with him. For those of you who are giving faithfully at whatever level, uh, thank God uh, for your, your witness and testimony. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, that we might reflect his glory as he shines his light on us one day at a time, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. <laughs>